0: Hello and welcome back to Aspen Talks Health. I am Dr. Nicola and today I am joined by Ashley Connolly. She is a psychotherapist and a recovery coach. She is also the creator and key therapist of her recovery and sober coaching intensive therapy program and the author of this awesome new book, It's Small But Powerful, Life 101, 21 Practical Personal Growth Principles. Very excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Nicola. Such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So we're going to talk about addiction. There are many things that we can be addicted to, so let's just dive right in and start with
1: the the definition of addiction. Okay. Okay. Um, And yes, as we all know, primarily what I focus on is addiction to substances. So drugs and alcohol are the most common ones um, here in the Valley. Um, So the the ASAM definition, which is the Society of Medicine, um, defines it as a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. Um, So that's kind of just a complicated science-laden definition. But I think what's important to note is that it is... By the AMA, which is the American Medical Association, the APA, the American Psychological Association, all of sort of the major organizations of professionals, whether doctors, psychologists, psychotherapists, classify addiction as a disease. Huh. Um, so I think that's important to realize because addiction still does have that stigma that you know maybe people are treated a little differently if they're an addict than if they have cancer. And the reality is it is a disease. And um, Fortunately, um, there was the Mental Parity Act that was passed a while ago that now it is treated like insurance companies have to pay for the treatment. Huh. Um, Interesting. But there's also, you know, what, what I want to talk about today a little bit too is that the disease model is, is very, very useful for, you know, somebody that's suffering from like severe chronic addiction, that it's crystal clear they need to stop their substance. It's causing major problems. Right. What I do see, though, is that, the disease model can also be a very uh, sort of convenient way for people to not recognize the extent to which their own maybe moderate, maybe somewhat heavy at times drinking is a problem.
0: Yeah, um, because how can you, like, if you just have, if you're going to the bar and let's say you have trouble not ordering a drink, but
1: you're not planning on getting plastered, is that an addiction? Right. And I think what's it's also important to realize is that Ultimately, it doesn't matter. Like I come in, in your show, it sounds like it comes from like a wellness perspective. Is it like, how can you live your best life? And what I work with people as a psychotherapist and sober coach is figuring out is like, how can you live your healthiest life? And so to take it away, the disease model is a way in some ways for people to be like, oh, well, I'm not that bad. Or I, I don't, you know, I haven't gotten a DUI or I haven't got this. So therefore, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not an addict. And it keeps people in problem drinking behavior. So what I like to do is work with people and figure out like, you know, what is the healthiest version of you look like? And I like to work with people because we also know that addiction is progressive. It's not like, for some people, it's like automatically they're off to the races and they're alcoholic. For many other people, and you know, now we've got, you know, marijuana, of course, opiates, there's so many different substances too. Um, And now there's, like, I really see a lot of us on this continuum of, you know, full-blown alcoholic and then, you know, problem drinkers. And, you know, the joke in recovery people say is that, you know, with with addiction, it's, you know, first there's, like, it's fun, and then it's fun with problems, and then it's just problems. Um, So so my role is I really would like to be a voice to help people stop before they get to that problem stage, before they're just on their knees in a mercy, and maybe to to choose sobriety as a way of life, much the way people choose you know, yoga or being a vegetarian or you know, hiking the bowl every day. Like, it's just we know that there's health benefits from either reducing our alcohol and drug intake. Um, so that's, that's kind of my goal. I want to be a voice that like, choosing not to, to drink or use is actually a really beautiful way of living.
0: Right. We're going to get to some of those techniques on how to choose Mm -hmm. the healthier options shortly, but first I want to understand a little bit more. Is it possible that you're Mm self-medicating and um, there's some benefit? Like, let me explain. From my personal experience, I, I had some childhood experiences that led to maybe chronic stress uh, scenarios mm-hmm. where um, my mother may have been uh, unhappy about something or explosive or whatever, and as mm-hmm. a child, I, I that put me at a chronic stress level. Mm-hmm. There was a um, I'll explain a little bit better. There is a. Uh, a study done on mice and they tapped them with a, a shock
1: mm-hmm. for the
0: exact amount of time at the same time and for the same duration each day mm-hmm. and those mice kind of they had you saw a spike in their stress level their cortisol level but then it came back down and they knew it was going to go away mm-hmm. no problem but they had other mice that they randomly shocked them and for sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, and it was just kind of very sporadic so the mice didn't know when it was coming and for how long it was going to last. And that created this low-level chronic stress that they almost had higher levels of of cortisol throughout the day no matter what, even if there wasn't any stress coming. Right, And so my theory is that because i think i experienced that throughout my childhood mm-hmm. no fault to my mother's at all she did a, she was a loving woman mm-hmm. but she you know um, projected her childhood experiences right
1: right that's what people
0: and um, i love you mommy <laughs> but um, point is i think i turned to marijuana to calm my nervous system mm-hmm. and to help reduce that level mm-hmm. of stress so is there is it possible that there's any benefit is yes. my point
1: well so, absolutely, and you said self-medication. So, and, and what you're referring to is a rare, very real phenomenon known in the, the literature as like microtraumas. And there's a lot of research that is showing those, those little sort of intermittent traumas are quite debilitating. So, absolutely, I mean, I think the vast majority of people that drink and use substances are self-medicating some wound. And yes, you know, there is a benefit. I mean, the thing is alcohol and marijuana, you know, some of these drugs, they work instantly the way an ibuprofen works instantly right Um, the question is and this is where it's a personal choice because if it's at at a certain point it's not going to work it's like you know you hurt yourself and you take ibuprofen but shouldn't we figure out what what the cause you know like why is your knee hurting you know or like why what is it and so you know that's what most people do is they medicate and and i think it's a bigger you know more existential question of like why do I want to escape myself? Is this how I want to live? And for a lot of people, the answer is, I just want to check out, I don't want to feel. But I think more and more people are moving into a more conscious way of living, where they want to really feel their feelings. So, yeah, I'm not going to say, and I'm certainly not somebody that thinks all alcohol use is wrong or all marijuana use. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I just want to be a voice that, like, you know, choosing to abstain can be a healthy way. Right. And yes, we, we're all self-medicating, I think. You know, anybody that's in addiction, There's that's how you start, is you're self-medicating. The question is, and that's where I think, you know, my program is unique. I am a licensed psychotherapist, but then I help, you know, I'm in long-term recovery myself, and I have a lot of background in addiction. And so I'm able to treat, you know, both work with people on the very sort of hands-on things you need to do to get sober, but then, to really dig deeper yeah. and figure out, like, what, you know, what is the wound? What's that primary wound that made you want to escape from who you are? Right. Um, and that's, I think, that's the advantage of mixing, you know, more deeper psychotherapeutic work with the more sort of traditional recovery. Um,
0: yeah, that makes perfect programs. sense. I, by the way, I'm not advocating marijuana use whatsoever. I think uh, definitely when I'm searching for words. I, that's my brain probably on marijuana. Like, mm-hmm. remember in the 80s, they had that, this is your brain on drugs, yep. the egg. <laughs> so yep. I'm, I'm not advocating. I think the, mm-hmm. the downside, the health effects are, are, are detrimental. But, um, so let's dive into a little bit of, how do people uncover what these causes are? Is it, are there any techniques in um, really understanding what the
1: triggers are? So when you say the causes, the causes of addiction? Uh, the causes or of,
0: yeah, desires of to check out.
1: D- desires to check out. Well. So there's a, there's a few different things. Um, first of all, what I tell people, especially as they've gotten to the point where they're, they are, you know, full-blown alcoholics or addicts, and they're aware of that, is that oftentimes people will come in and they're searching and searching, like, why do I drink? Why? If I could only figure out why I drink so much, I can get better. And the good news is, is that you can quit drinking or using without having to figure out why. Hmm. Um, so doing therapeutic work, you know, you may or may not discover the exact reason, but I just want people to know they, there's such this search of like, if I knew, then I would, but that's, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes self-examination just keeps us in that cycle of drinking and using. And so there are, you know, ways to, to stop without having to know why. Um, You know, with that said, there are, you know, research shows that there's certainly a genetic component to it. Um, You know, there are some people that, you know, in some studies that come out and show the different, you know, their brains of alcoholics or addicts are structurally different. Yeah. Um, wow. there's a fascinating book called under the influence that I think anybody should read under the influence. If you want to really dive into sort of the biochemical Ooh. basis of, of addiction. Under the um, be- influence. Yes, because there is, um, there is some science behind it. Um, you know, with other drugs, um, not necessarily marijuana, but some of the opiates. I mean, I think that anybody that does them long enough will, you know, I think there's certain drugs that you'll just become addicted if you right. start using them long enough. Right. And so it doesn't, it's not that you're, you know, specifically unique, right. you know, you, one is. Um,
0: Interesting. Uh, but a lot of your clients, is it, is it, are there childhood related experiences or is it, it can be also genetic. You're saying there's a variety of reasons. Yeah, I think
1: that's the whole thing. You know, people in recovery talk about, you know, like we're from Yale to jail. You know, people, there's not, you know, you can be somebody that's just had this awful childhood that was, you know, beaten and they become an alcoholic. And then there's just people like, God, I wish I almost had a reason. I had a perfect, you know, my family was wonderful. Like, and I became an alcoholic. Um, and so I don't think there's certain markers for that. Um, the research has shown that there's really not, you know, so many lay people will say, Oh, I have an addictive personality, but research really doesn't back that up. Um, you know, there's a sense that, you know, there's certain subs, you you put anything in your body long enough, you, You people will get addicted. And, and that's, you know, back to the definition. I never really did finish this sort of the definition of addiction, but how you know, psychotherapists and psychologists classify, um, alcoholics and addicts is through, you know, the DSM, which is sort of the, the therapeutic Bible that kind of tells you everything. And it has a very set list of criteria and it has to do with things like, you know, tolerance, like do you need more of the substance? Like, you know, most people can associate like, wow, half a beer used to give me a buzz and now right. I need three. And so, you know, most people are experiencing at least some of these. Absolutely. Um, but then it also has to do with like, you know, are you having problems in your family relationships, occupation, school, not showing up? Um, are you, um, you know, craving a drink in the morning? You know, all kinds of different, right. different things. Right.
0: Okay, let's switch to solutions. Then. Okay. So we have two people in our head. One is saying, let's go for a run. That's the healthy thing to do. Mm-hmm. And the other little guy is going, nah, just have a drink.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> How do you not listen to that guy? How do you turn him off
1: mm-hmm. or her? Well, so the solution, I think what I want to differentiate too, because I think there's very, there's very sort of different people. You know, there's somebody that, you know, is crystal clear they need to stop their substances they've kind of hit rock bottom kind of more of like the classic alcoholics so there's solutions for what they need to do but it okay. sounds like you're talking about somebody that's like just you know, I know maybe this is healthy
0: for me yeah, yeah
1: like this isn't great and so the the most important thing is that i think there has to be an intention because i think for a lot of people there's this sense you know it, it it's almost comical how like some article comes out that says oh the benefits of moderate drinking, help your heart. And, you know, those things get so overplayed and shared. And so, so there has to be this desire that so people can tell themselves, oh, it's good for me. It's the red right. wine as antioxidants or, you know, what have you. So right. there has to be an intention is the first thing, um, because we are conscious creators of our life. So, you know, short of getting, you know, this is before somebody's gotten to the throes of a later stage addiction where they really don't have any control, like that does happen. But for somebody that's just kind of looking at like, hey, I want to be healthier. I think the most important thing is is to um, set that intention. Mm -hmm. And so really be mindful, like, well, you know, I'm just going to, I'm only going to drink one day a week. Um, Or more and more people are doing this dry January. It's been really catching on, which is phenomenal. So if you miss that, you can do dry February. (laughs) But, um, but it's just this idea, you know, if, if you're, if you don't have a problem with a substance, then it shouldn't be a problem to give it up Mm. for a week, a couple weeks, a month, um, and see how you feel. And oftentimes people are shocked, like, wow, I'm sleeping better. I didn't snap at my husband. You know, I went on that run that morning. Um, so I think. I think that's a, a technique in itself is just setting, setting that intention. Absolutely. Um, and then also education, so really educating yourself on um, on the health risks of it. I think right. there's so um, there is a lot of hyperbole out there about, oh you know moderate drinking's good for you, but if you dive deeper into some of the research, it's really not that great for you. Right. Um, and you know I'm not even going to get into the whole debate about marijuana, but there's, there's more and more problems, you know, with mm-hmm. it. And so I think, you know, moderate use, the, the reality is what the research shows is that 80% of the marijuana use is used by 15% of the population. And those people are using it Often daily, you know, daily. like wow. all day long. Yeah. And so what we don't, so that's a whole different yeah. <laughs> can of worms.
0: You hit on something very important. I think Setting your intention, writing it down in the in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, I'm choosing healthy. Mm-hmm. Today, everything I put in my body will be a healthy choice. Yeah, yeah. Writing that down and committing to it in the mm-hmm. morning, I found very helpful. And also creating something that serving your purpose, mm-hmm. like this show for me, mm-hmm. gave me the inspiration to not want to do any mar- marijuana because I need my yeah. brain intact. Right. I right. I need to be able to mm-hmm. listen and have a dialogue. And mm-hmm. so having that intention
1: and purpose really helps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there was a fascinating study that's, um, that I read recently that said like people that actually write down, you know, I've got my hand, I still keep, well, this isn't it, but you know, I still keep like a paper day timer because I just love it. And they say, you know, people that write down when they're going to work out are 75% more likely to stick to it.
0: Interesting. You know? And
1: I thought, wow. And I don't know how big the study was, but I think the same with drinking, you know, if you have this little journal and you just write down like not drinking, not drinking, you know. And then if you want to drink on Saturday. So really just being more mindful about it. Yeah. Um.
0: There's something about writing, though. Mm-hmm. You're cre- you're, it's almost like you're making a commitment to yourself. You are. You are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, just a book came to mind, Magnificent Minds at Any Age by Dr. Amon. Okay. He has done 125,000 oh, brains. he's the brain scan guy. Yeah. Guy. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And if you just listen to the first four chapters... I advise this for any parent out there, with, with teenage kids especially, mm-hmm. get them to listen to the first four chapters because he goes over exactly what happens to the brain and it will scare the bejesus out of them. Mm-hmm. Because your brain actually doesn't stop developing till 25, yeah. some say yeah. even 28. Mm-hmm. And if you behave in destructive behaviors like alcohol mm-hmm. and, and marijuana and drug use, you um, before 25, before the brain is fully developed, it's much harder and even virtually impossible to reverse the damage. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: It's fascinating.
1: Mm-hmm. And there's some scary stuff with the, the early drug use, and that's the most important thing for for parents out there. The most, The two most important messages, I think, is delay, delay, delay. Yeah. You know, research shows the longer a child child or, you know, teenager waits to have that first drink, their rates of addiction go way down. You know, so if you have your first drink at 14, you're much more likely to become an addict than if you wait until you're even 17, 18, 19. So as a parent, to whatever extent, you know, and a lot of it has to do with that brain development. Um, The other piece that I, I would love to have a conversation about, and this is important for for, um, you know, parents worried about their kids, is this whole idea of social norms. You know, I can't tell you, I have people that come into my office and they, they're worried about their drinking, but they're like, everybody drinks. Everybody I know, that's all we do. Everybody drinks. That are, you know, these high schoolers say, like, every single kid smokes pot every day. You know, every And so there's this misperception that, and yes, you know, we do live in a party town. A lot of people drink. You know, they're partiers. But you know, we, we see what we're looking for. We see what crowd we're a part of. And like the, this, the latest, um, my husband used to be involved with this organization that did, um, surveys in the school. And it was usually like, you know, 50% of the kids smoked pot or, you know, I can't remember what it was exactly, but it wasn't a hundred percent. And right. so, and the same thing with Aspen, you know, there's this, for people that go to bars all the time, there's a sense of like, everybody drinks, what would I do? Yeah. But the reality is there's a whole crew of us. I mean, I just went out to dinner with a bunch of friends and they're not, in recovery or they're not addicts, but they don't drink. You know, they just, you know, we play, you know, we run, we go outside, we run marathons, we hike the bowl, we do other things and we don't drink. And there's just this perception that like everybody uses. So I think there just needs to be more of a movement of people that are choosing a more, you know, intentional way of, of living.
0: Yeah. And Um, you attract who you are as well. So as soon as I cut back on the alcohol and now Mm -hmm. now I very rarely drink, uh, Every, it seemed like every person I met was like, no, I don't drink. I
1: was yeah. like, wow. I know. That happens. That's like my fantastic. husband and I were at a wedding and we were at this <laughs> table. And it's not like people were in recovery and like nobody drank. It was just like I think those are just the people we are around now. Yeah. Um, and this isn't to say, you know, a lot of my friends will have a glass of wine here and there or, you know, some moderate intake. So they're not all tea and There's nothing wrong with an occasional drink. I think there's just, it's a slippery slope to addiction. And I think there needs to be more voices out there that's saying like, you can live a really fun, fulfilling life without substances. And then to ask the more sort of metaphysical question, like, why is everybody trying to escape from themselves? Like, what don't you like about your life or yourself that you need to drink and use or, you know, change the way you're feeling? Right, Numb yourself, essentially. To numb yourself, yeah. Why are so many of us needing to numb? Um, And that's where, you know, therapy can be helpful in really looking at things. Ooh, homework.
0: (laughs) That is a great homework question. Take a moment and, again, hand on your heart, take a few deep breaths, and on your third exhale, really ponder the question, what am I escaping from? What am I running? What do I need to numb myself for? Mm -hmm. Like, what what exactly is it? Self-criticism? Is it the inner dialogue? Is it judgments from others? Is it, I'm not good enough? Is it, mm-hmm. I'm not achieving enough? What is it that's really triggering you to yeah. want to go, I need to get out for a second? Mm-hmm. Very interesting, I hope that helps. Uh, you mentioned to me yesterday when we met about a, a spiritual way of life being the solution. Can mm-hmm. you share a
1: little bit about that? Yeah. Um, you know, research, it's fascinating, is that um, for people that have exp- progressed to the full-blown addiction, Um, really there needs to be a spiritual solution is what I've seen in my practice and what, you know, I think research is increasingly bearing out is that, you know, in addition to, you know, psychotherapeutic work and, um, 12 step programs has worked and I'm such a believer in 12 step programs, which is like AA or NA if people aren't familiar with that. But finding a spiritual way of life, surrendering instead of because it's that self will. You know, there's this myth that like willpower, like I'm just not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. That might work for like a week or two. You'll be miserable. You'll be. And so there is this sense of, you know, turning things over to a power greater than yourself um, and finding something, a source to connect with. And so this really has nothing to do with religion or, um, you know, it doesn't have to be you know, any type of formal Christian God or a Buddhist perspective, but it's really leaning into a way of life where you realize that you're not the star of the show, you know, that you need something greater than yourself to help you. Um, And and how actually the recovery movement like AA was founded was um, Carl Jung, who was one of the most famous um, psychiatrists of his time. And he was with this man named Roland who was like a severe alcoholic and he did everything from like a medical perspective, psychiatric perspective. And he's like, you know what? You're helpless. You're going to die. But basically the only thing that might help is if you have a vital spiritual experience. And so this guy's like, okay, like I don't, he wasn't quite ready to die, but he didn't know how to fix himself. And you know, he did have this sort of vital spiritual experience. Um, so, you know, I've seen that there's not one way for people to recover, but I've rarely, if ever, you know, seen somebody have a solid, you know, recovery program where they're free of substance, living a good life, that they didn't also have some type of spiritual life.
0: How do you guide people into that journey, the spir- to a journey of spiritual life, excuse me?
1: You know, I think it's just an openness because I think so many people are either wounded from their past, like maybe they had a bad experience with religion. Is It's really helping people realize that it has nothing to do with, you know, maybe a, childhood religion you had. And, you know, your higher power can just be like, you know, for a lot of people, like it's the AA group is their sort of higher power at first. Or, you know, we live in this beautiful environment. You look outside. How can you not believe that there's something greater than yourself? So it's it's really, I think, um, a slow helping somebody realize that they don't have to do it alone. Because I think it's a lonely way, you know, to recover. What we do know is that you need to do it in community. And so sometimes you're, higher power is just the community, the people that, you know, whether it's your therapist or your friends, you know, whoever's supporting you on your journey to get healthier, that can be your higher power. Mm. Um, A lot of people in this valley are into yoga. You know, there's, there's so many different ways to do it. So I think you just help somebody realize that it's just, it's not, you know, and, and there's people that can find their higher power through a very scientific lens. You know, increasingly there's like a scientific study of metaphysical stuff. So there's just no one right way. Hmm. Um,
0: you offer a concierge service. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Um,
1: so I have a private practice here on main street where I, you know, work with clients, not just people dealing with addiction, but all kinds of things. Um, but what I did realize is that there's a lot of people, I think, you know, when somebody's in the depths of addiction, there is so much pain and so much shame that picking up that phone and walk into an office, they can't do. Um, and so, I've created a service where I'm willing, you know, ultimately I am such a believer that the way we get sober is in community, but we got to get somebody to the community. And so, um, I will go to somebody's house and figure out, hear from them, because there's a lot in the the recovery community, whether it's somebody goes to rehab, like, okay, here you are, this is what we do, A, B, C, and D. And that works for a lot of people, but for just as many people, they say, no, not going to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going away for 28 days. I'm not doing these, you know, all these meetings. Um, but they want to get help. So I meet people where they are. And I go to their house and I figure out, like, what do you want? And then I coordinate a treatment team, whether it's, you know, a nutritionist or a nurse or doctor. Ultimately, my goal is to get them, obviously, out of the house, like, to, you know, to a community to help them recover. Yeah. Um, but I will be their starting point. Starting, good. Um, and, 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 and then help them you know, create, I don't believe recovery is a one size fits all. Like I think, you know, some people going to meetings and, you know, doing that, but for some people they need a different approach. Yeah. Um, and so I try to help people where they are.
0: I love that. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your service. Okay. Part two of your homework assignment, we came up together is to ponder the question, what would my life look like if it was substance free? What would my life look like if it was substance-free? Please take some time to journal on that. You'll be quite interested, I'm sure, to see what comes out. Just mm-hmm. keep writing and flowing, and you'll see what comes out. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for being on the show. I
1: really am grateful. Um, how can people find you? Let's see. Um, my website is aspenpsychotherapy.com. Good. Um, I can just give my phone number, 970-618-7007. Good. Um, so I've got, um, you know, psychotherapeutic practice, an intensive sort of therapeutic program, and then, as you mentioned, the, the in-home services that I do. Um, I love it. Awesome. Yeah.
0: All right, you guys, check out AspenTalksHealth.com. I'll put up all of Ashley's contact information there so you can reach out to her. And I, again, I'm so grateful. Thank you for being on the oh, show. Oh, thank
1: you, Nicola. That's it's been a pleasure. Good. Oh, and check out her book, Life, Life 101. Yeah. It's at Explore and Carl's, I think, and Amazon. <laughs> Wonderful. Good, thank you guys. Thanks.